Alright, so most of you know this, but we've been going <clears throat> through the Gospel of Mark, just section by section. This is where we land today, Mark 9, uh, verse 30 through 41. So let's pray, and we'll get into it. <clears throat> Father, thank you for letting us come to your Word now. And God, I just want to I want to commit this time to you, Lord, that you would take this time and you would glorify your name, you would humble our hearts, you change us, God, do awesome things, Lord, during this time. This is what, this is what you do. You are, you are an awesome God. And just ask you, God, that you would work, you would do a work in, our, in ourselves and our hearts, Lord, as we go through, this, through your word. God, please help me to preach your word and the ability that you supply. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I, I think, I don't know for sure, I think it's a public speaking no-no to tell people you're about to do an introduction to this verse, but I'm going to do the no-no anyways. Because I have three introductions, I couldn't pick one, so I'm going to give them all to you. All right, the first thing, here's the first thing I want to do, first introduction to this text. I want to set it up, okay? I want to set up where we're at. And one thing I want to do is help you see where does this passage fit in the book of Mark. Let's just kind of zoom out. And see if I can get you to see where does Mark 9, 30 through 41, where does it fit in the whole uh, book of Mark? And we've got to move quick here, okay? Okay, if you take the book of Mark, you can, you can divide it up into three sections. Let me tell you about those three sections. Mark chapters 1 through 8, and what you see in Mark 1 through 8, you see Jesus revealing Himself to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. And He's just revealing Himself. He's healing people. Raising people from the dead, casting out demons. He's just revealing himself to be this Christ, the Christ. Okay, And about chapter 8, verse 29, he gets this confession out of his disciples. He says, who do you say that I am? They say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So he gets his confession, this great confession out of his disciples that he is indeed that Christ. So that's chapters 1 through 8. And then, right after that, chapters 8 through 10, so which is really the second part of chapter 8 through to chapter 10, is Jesus' journey from Caesarea Philippi. He's up north above Galilee, and He's t- going south all the way down. He's headed to the cross. He set His face like flint from chapter 8 to chapter 10 in Mark, and He's headed toward the cross. He's headed towards Jerusalem. Okay, And that's that section of Scripture. And then when He, when he begins to get close to Jerusalem in chapter 11, chapter 11 through 16, this is a, a lot of people call it the, the Passion Week of Jesus. Okay? This is like the last week of Jesus' life on earth, just before, just after uh, his, resur- uh, his, excuse me, his crucifixion. And so this is a, a Passion Week in the last six chapters of Mark. So a lot of time devoted to that week. Okay? So here you got Mark, 1 through 8, 8 through 10, and 11 through 16, and it's all divided up there. Okay? Now here's what I want you to see. That the section that we're in today is we're in that section... Where in chapter 8, they're at Caesarea Philippi, okay, in chapter 8, and they see, they say, you are the Christ, you're the Son of the living God. They see it, okay, that you are the Christ, they confess it in 829. And from that point, all the way, if they're going to pass down, they're going to they're go down south all the way, they're headed towards, he's headed towards Jerusalem with his disciples to be crucified for our sins, Okay. And in chapter 9, we're at today, they're in Galilee. To, to go from north of Galilee to Jerusalem, you got to go south through Galilee. So they're in Galilee in chapter 9 in the section that we're in today, okay? Now, you would say this, right? That whatever Jesus in these last few months, from chapters 8 to chapter 10, 
whatever he's just pressing into his disciples of these last few months, I mean, this is big, right? I mean, if you can find any pattern during this time when, he leaves, when they leave Caesarea Philippi and they land in Judea and in Jerusalem, if you can find a pattern of something that Jesus is just pressing in and pressing in and pressing in, it'd be pretty important, would it not? All right, well, I want to show you a pattern. There's a pattern. In chapter 8, Jesus does something. He does it again in chapter 9, and He does it again in chapter 10. So that means He does it in Caesarea Philippi, and He does it as they're coming down south into Galilee, and He does it as they get further south into Judea. Over and over again, He keeps pressing this into them. And what is it? Well, in chapter 8, and I'll show you some of this. Go to chapter 8 real quick. Here's what you're going to see. And before we even look at each one of them in 8, 9, and 10, here's what I want you to see. That a way you could summarize each one of these is he shows them that he is going to be, it's the humility of Christ. He's going to be the humble Christ. Remember, they're looking for that Christ that's only going to be ruler, reigning, king. That's all they're looking for. They miss this Isaiah 53 Christ that's going to be a humble servant that's going to die for the sins of his people. They miss that. And he's going to hit them with that in 8, 9, and 10. He's going to just keep going hitting them with that, okay? And then each time, here's what you'll notice, and we're going to read these, but here's what you'll notice. Right after he says to them, I'm, he, he corrects their understanding of the Christ, I'm going to suffer. Immediately following, he does something to show them, about, show them something about themselves. So not only does he correct who the Christ would be, but he, correct, he corrects their mindset about who Christ's followers would be. Because they thought Christ would just be a, only a ruling, reigning king and not a humble, suffering servant. They also thought that Christ's followers would be what? Ruling reigning, not humble servants who also may suffer. Okay, so let me show you this. Chapter 8. If you look in verse, uh, you know, verse 29 is where they confessed it. You were the Christ. That's the climax of that chapter there. And then verse 31. And He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chiefs and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. So He begins to teach them that the Son of Man that Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, that son of man who's the king, whom people from all nations are going to bow down before him and serve him. And he says, hey, that son of man must first suffer. He's going to, be, he's going to enter into his humility. He's going to be a humble servant who suffers. And then immediately after that, what does he do? Well, Peter doesn't like it. Why? Because Peter was not looking for, no, I know that you're the Christ, but that's not what I was looking for when you said you're going to be humble and suffer. That's not what I was looking for. So Peter doesn't like it. And then Jesus turns to him in verse 34 and he says this to the people. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples, also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, so followers of Jesus, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And you could keep reading on. But what you're getting into here is he's telling them, I'm gonna, okay, he's going to correct their view of the Christ. He's going to be a humble servant who suffers and dies. And then he corrects their understanding of Christ's followers themselves. They're going to be humble servants. They're going to deny themselves and follow in the footsteps of this Christ. Okay? All right, go to chapter 9. Chapter 9, the passage that we're in today, verse 30 through 41. We'll actually read this whole passage since this is actually the one we're in today, okay? And what I want you to see is he does the exact same thing again. He corrects who the Christ would be. This is on that road to the cross. He corrects who the Christ would be. And then he corrects who Christ's followers would be. Verse 30. Then they departed from there, passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. 
For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he's killed, he will rise the third day. Do you see it? He's correcting their understanding again. He's giving it to them again. The Christ is going to be a humble servant who dies for the sins of his people. He's going to be slaughtered like a lamb for the sins of his people. And then he's going to rise. So he corrects them. Verse 32 says, But they did not understand this saying, and were afraid to ask him. You see, that didn't fit. What? I was not the kind of Christ I was looking for. It's not what I thought. It didn't fit. But this is who he was. Verse 33, watch how he turns it on them now. What, what are Christ's followers to be? Then he came to Capernaum, and, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent. For on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. You see their arrogance? You see their pride? He's about to correct it. He's about to show them not only is He going to be the humble servant that suffers, but they too are to be humble servants. Look at this. And when He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then He took a child, and He set him in the midst of them. And when He had taken him in His arms, He said to him, Whoever receives one of these little children in My name receives Me. And whoever receives Me receives not Me, but Him who sent Me. Now John answered him saying, Teacher, we, we saw someone who's not follow us casting out demons in your name and, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterward speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So you see it again. Chapter 8, chapter 9. He's revealing Himself to be the Christ, but not just the Daniel 7 Christ, the Son of Man who's a ruling King, but the suffering, the humble Christ, the humble suffering servant. And He reveals about the disciples what? You've you got a misunderstanding. You too are going to be, you want to be great? You're going to be a humble servant. Just like me. Alright, go to chapter 10. I'll show you this one quickly. We won't spend much time here since this is not our passage today. Chapter 10. Okay, <clears throat> You start in verse 32. Watch this. He does it again. He's already done it in Caesarea Philippi. He did it when they were in the Galilean region. And now they're in Judea. close, Very, very close to Jerusalem. Watch, He does it again. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was going before them. And they were amazed and they followed. <clears throat> and, and as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again. So he does it again. He takes the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we're going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. They will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him and the third day he'll rise again. He hits him with it again. You see this? So what we see is over and over again, he keeps hitting with this thought. And guess what happens right after this? Then Mark gives us details about this story where James and John, they come up to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want to be, can we be on your right hand, on your left hand when you enter into your kingdom? And then all the rest of them, the other ten, got mad about it because they want to be the greatest. They want to be first. You see the arrogance? And Jesus almost teaches them the exact same, same language, even the same language, the exact same lesson. He says, whoever wants to be great among you, let him be a slave of all and a servant of all. Humble servants, as you keep reading. It gets summarized in chapter 10, verse 45, when Jesus says, even the Son of Man, even the Son of Man, 
The conquering king, even he didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Okay, so you see what's happening. If you take what is it Jesus is trying to get across on the road from, from Caesarea Philippi in chapter 8 all the way to Judea and Jerusalem in chapter 10 where he's going to be crucified, what's he trying to get across? And you could summarize it by this word, humility. Humility. He's trying to drive it home that he, he is about to enter into his humiliation. He's a humble servant and that you who follow me must be humble servants. This is a very important humility. It's a very important, very overarching characteristic that should be seeping out of every Christian that calls himself a follower of the humble Christ. At least that's our aim, right? Humility. That's introduction number one. Introduction number two, okay? I want to introduce you to this, this, introduce you to this passage. Number two. Everybody say this with me. You ready? It's going to be tough for me to say it. Here we go. Tapai nafrasune. Where's Bryson? All right, go ahead. Try it, Bryson. All right, hear me out. Everybody say it with me. Say it after me. Tapai nafrasune. Tapai Okay. That was good. You guys are like Greek scholars. Uh, now, I, I, just, I say that I just want to kind of plant that in your mind. This word, I want you to think about this word. Tapai nafrasune. Okay, it's a Greek word. It's all over the New Testament and it means humility. It means humility. Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 uses it. It says, in lowliness of mind. Or some versions say, in humility of mind. Consider others better than yourself. Humility is what that word means. Now, now, here's what's interesting about that word. This word, tapai nafrasune, I practice that a lot. It does not exist in classical Greek language. You know that? What this means is New Testament times and before, this word is nowhere to be found in extra biblical Greek writings. It's nowhere. So what does this mean? This word that we just said together is actually a creation of the New Testament. The Gospel created this word. Okay, So what does this mean? What does the deal with this? this? I want you to think about this. Just imagine how crazy that is. You're sitting around and the New Testament writers inspired by the Spirit of God and they're thinking, I want to describe the humility of Christ and I want to describe what He calls His followers into. And He thinks, there's no word. There's no word for this. So he takes one word and another word and he jams them together. And here's this New Testament created word. Tapai nafrasuna. Okay, listen to Martin Vincent as a guy. He wrote a Greek lexicon. He talks about Greek words. Listen to what he said. He called this word an outgrowth of the gospel. An outgrowth. Humility of mind as a great virtue. That was an outgrowth of the gospel. You see that? That ought to tell you what, what the gospel ought to produce. In the lives of his saints. Okay, it's as if Jesus showed such an incredible example of humility. And he called his disciples to such an incredible level of humility that there's no word in the Greek language. There's no word for it. And so they make up their own. John MacArthur mentioned this, and I'm not going to read this little passage he wrote there, but he, he speaks of a word, uh, tapinos, tapinos. He mentions that word, tapinos. We said tapinosafrasune. Tapinos is a hooked into that word. Okay, this is part of the compound. Okay, and that word. Okay, he could have used that one, right? It kind of means humble or lowly. But the problem is, 
In the Greek language, it was always derogatory. It was never a good thing. It was never a virtue. It was always seen as something bad. And so they have to create this new word. It's like, it's like Jesus so flipped upside down the worldviews. Jesus flipped upside down. He just flipped it over the values of the people that they had to come up with new words to talk about this great, great virtue of humility. It's a great virtue. Humility. The Greek world, being backwards, ignorant of, of Christian humility, doesn't have a word for it. And I'll just tell you this. With thinking about that Greco-Roman world being backwards and ignorant of this kind of humility, I would say that our world and our culture is not far from it. Okay? I want you to think about that. Our world. Think about pride. I want, Jesus is going to press humility into us today. Okay? So I want you to think about the culture that you live in and how we too are backwards when it comes to humility. I'll give you two very quick examples. One example. In our culture, in this culture, you tell me what you do with these words. Think about these words and what comes to your mind. What does our culture do with these words? Listen to them. Self-confidence. Pride. Self-esteem. What does our culture do with those words? They are exalted. Those kind of words are exalted in this culture as virtues. But don't you see that they are the very opposite of humility? Self-esteem. Pride. These things are the opposite of humility. I used to work, I had a job, I used to be a performance coach at a place, uh, at a sports performance, uh, I don't know what you call it, it's just a company, okay? And I was a performance coach, and they used to have these things called V-trues. And it's like one word that you can put on a shirt, like desire, you know, it's supposed to fire you up, desire, you know, it just means something to you, right? <laughs> V-trues. And there were five V-trues, and they had one for each shirt, and that's how they'd reward their coaches and reward their players for a job well done. Listen to the V-trues. I wrote them down. Desire, belief, character, determination, heart. You know what the last one is? Pride. A big yellow shirt that said pride on it. They wonder why I never wore that shirt. <laughs> pride goes before destruction. I know we're in this shirt. Okay. <laughs> But, but isn't that a good visual? Isn't that a good visual of what our culture does with these words? Pride, self-esteem, self-confidence. This is the picture. This is what your culture... Let me give you another picture. This is a more spiritual picture, okay? What does our culture do with these words? Minister. Ministry. What comes to your mind? Minister or ministry. And usually it's high and exalted. I'm a minister. And I have my ministry. And it's a very arrogant, high and lofty type thought. But you know what this word means? It's used in the Bible, and it means servant. It, me it means servant. It's a, it's a Latin word, minister, that means servant. In fact, it comes from a Latin word, this minus. Minus, like two minus one. Minus, meaning less, meaning subordinate. Okay, minister. And we've taken that word. And Jesus, what He's going to do in this passage, He's pressing into them. He's turning their worldview upside down saying, you want greatness? It's to humble yourself. It's to lower yourself. And what do we do? We take humble words and we try to flip it back over. Okay? So we don't want to do that. We need our values flipped just like the disciples did. Humility is not very often seen as a... a, a a virtue of greatness is not usually seen that way, but it should be. In fact, if you could, let me say this real quick. If you could just take the whole Bible, okay? And we don't have time to do it now, obviously. And you just, every place where it explicitly mentions humility, lowliness of mind, and even places where it doesn't explicitly mention, but it presses you on that. If you could just do that, you would be overwhelmed with how important this is. 
overwhelmed. Let me give you just a couple examples. How does the Bible describe the greatest leader and prophet in the Old Testament? Listen to Numbers 12.3. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who are on the face of the earth. How does the greatest prophet describe who God looks on? How does he describe it? Isaiah 66, verse 1 and 2. It says, look at these heavens. God made these heavens. All these things I've made, says God. But on this one I will look. On who? Him who is humble and contrite and who trembles at my word. Humility. It's a big deal. What do the Psalms say about humility? Psalm 25, 9. The humble he guides in justice and the humble he teaches his way. What do the Proverbs say? Pride goes before destruction. God gives grace to the humble. It's a big deal. What does the Son of God say about it? Matthew chapter 8, verse 4. Jesus says, Whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This is a big, big deal. And listen, every single New Testament writer speaks either explicitly or in some sort of form about humility. Every single one of them. So you know what that means? That means you can't read a book in this New Testament. You, can't, you probably can't read a book in this whole Bible that doesn't press on your pride and prod you towards servant-like humility. It's a really big deal all the way through the Scriptures. It's very, very, very important. Uh, let me give you a, a quote real quick. This is from Augustine. Listen to this quote. If you ask me in regards to the precepts, to the Christian religion. And what he's saying, he said, if you ask me about the leading precepts, like what's the number one principles and precepts of Christianity? You know what his answer is? He said, I will answer first, second, and third, humility. It's a big deal to Augustine, right? Humility, humility, humility. It is of, of immeasurable importance. Without the humility of Christ, we would all still be in our sins. If he didn't humble himself and die on a cross, we'd still be in our sins and go to hell. But he humbled himself, even to the point of death, even the death of a cross. He died. And if we don't walk in humility, we are opposed by God and we're unlike Christ. Unlike Christ. All right, third introduction to this passage. Third introduction. This is more personal. We need this pressing from Jesus on humility. We really need this. Grace Community Church needs to be, needs to be prodded about its pride and humble low. Now here's what I mean. Raise your hand if you're humble. See? I'm just kidding on that one. Okay. Just kidding. But we do need this. Okay, on a serious note, we do need humility. We need to be pressed. And there's a lot. We, we have like the ingredients for pride. It's all around us. And I'm just going to give you one of those ingredients, okay? We are Americans. Most of us. Not all of us. <laughs> uh, and John is, is uh, conformed to us Americans, so he, he can. Okay, for the most part, we're Americans. And here's, I, I'm so thankful for that. I'm thankful to God for that. But you do know that we're seen all over the world as the most arrogant people, the most prideful, arrogant people in all the world. Let me give you one example of that that cuts like a knife. Okay? There's America, an American missionary. And he's going to write a book about missions. And he begins to travel all over, talking to different international people, like different countries, poor countries, rich countries, whatever. He's just going all over the place. And as he does that, he's asking them one question. 
And he's going to gather this information and put it into his book. And here's the question that he asks. He says, what could missionaries do to more effectively minister the gospel of Christ in your culture? What could Americans, what can missionaries, excuse me, he's an American missionary, what can missionaries do to more effectively minister the gospel in your culture? And the answer that he got over and over and over again will cut you like a knife. Let me give you one example. He said this, Missionaries could more effectively minister the gospel of Christ if they did not think they were so superior to us. Ouch. Twist it. Hurts, right? We, we have that against us in some, in some way, and we don't even know it oftentimes. So I want to encourage you, we personally, Grace Community Church, that's just one ingredient I gave you, but let's beware of the prideful tendencies of our culture and let's press into humility and really let's let Jesus do it. Go to Mark 9, verse 30. Mark 9, verse 30. Verse, we're going to start off verse 30 through 32. is going to tell us about the humility of Christ. Okay, let's start with that first phrase. Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee. So you remember, they've been in Caesarea Philippi, and they're moving south, passing through Galilee. He's headed to the cross. He's headed to be slaughtered like a lamb as a substitute for our sins. That's where He's headed. And we see He's passing through Galilee. Next phrase. And did not want anyone to know it. If you remember, Galilee was a place where he'd done most of his ministry. Massive crowds of people gathered around him at Galilee. And he says right here, he's passing through Galilee, but he doesn't want anybody to know it. Why? Why doesn't he want anyone to know it? The next phrase tells you, for he taught his disciples. You see, his focus was on his disciples. He's zoned in on his disciples. His public ministry, for the most part, at least in Galilee, is over. And he's zoned in on these disciples. And he wants to teach them. And you see the emphasis. You saw it a minute ago, right? He's teaching them that he is going to the cross. That he's a humble servant that's going to die for the sins of his people. Now, what was he teaching them? Look at the next phrase. This is verse 31. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men. And they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. So the focus of Jesus' teaching is his death. It's his cross. It's his humiliation. And he's focusing in on his humiliation. I want you to notice that he calls himself the Son of Man. That Daniel 7, 13 through 14, that king, that reigning king. And every people are going to be his servants from every nation, tribe, and tongue on earth, according to Daniel 7, 13 through 14. And the disciples are jiving with that. Yeah, I'm good with that, him being the Son of Man. I'm okay with that. But then what doesn't make sense to them is what? What's the problem? The problem is they can't fathom that this high and lofty one is about to humble himself as a servant and die. And they can't fathom that. And so what do they say? How do they respond? Look at what it says here in verse 32. They did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. They didn't understand and they were afraid to ask him. What could it mean that they didn't understand? What could that mean? It, listen, hear me out. It's not that they couldn't put two and two together. It's not that they just, I don't know what the word killed means. You know, it's not that, okay? What's the issue here? What is it that they're not understanding? And here's one thing that'll give you a little light on that. If you look at the account over in Matthew 17, right after Jesus says the same story, it's just in another account. Right after he says in Matthew 17, he says, and they were exceedingly sorrowful. Sorrowful. What was it? It's not that they didn't understand some of the details about what was coming for Christ, but they couldn't understand why. Why would, 
Why would the one I've seen as the, the Son of Man, the reigning King who rules all nations, why would He be this humble? That didn't fit. Why would He be this humble servant who dies? It just didn't fit in the way they thought. In their mind, leadership, leadership, and especially kingship, did not, was not in any way equivalent to what? Humility. And especially death on a cross, that kind of humility. It just didn't fit to them. And they don't understand and then it says, and they were afraid to ask. Now, why were they afraid to ask? And I don't know exactly why they were afraid to ask, but I know this. The last person that bucked Jesus on Him going to the cross got rebuked pretty hard. <laughs> Remember Peter? He pretty much called Him Satan. So I bet I imagine He doesn't want to do this again. Okay, a couple observations before we move on to the next, next part of this uh, section here. A couple observations I want you to see. Uh, I want you to notice in verse 31... It says, the Son of Man is being betrayed. Some of your versions say delivered. Delivered is really a better translation there. The Son of Man is being delivered. That's a present tense verb right there. He is being delivered is what He says right there. In other words, He doesn't say, Jesus doesn't say, I will be delivered. Jesus is saying present tense right now, I am being delivered. As He's speaking, as the words are going in His mouth, He says, I am being delivered into the hands of men and they are going to kill me. Now what, is, what does this tell us? that this process of Christ going to the, to the cross, the triune God had planned this out far before He even came to the earth. Don't you see that? That this has always been the plan of God. It's not as if Christ came to the earth, got rejected, and just rolled over and died. That's not what happened. This has always been the plan that He would come and He would suffer and He would die as a lamb slaughtered as a substitute for His people. It's always been the plan. Listen to this verse. Acts chapter 2, verse 23 says this. This Jesus, this Jesus delivered up, same language, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Did you hear what it said? Lawless men crucified Christ, but don't miss this amazing truth that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit agreed upon this action long before it happened. He's the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the earth. This was the definite plan of God. Another observation I want you to see here. I want you to see this. Please don't miss the unfathomable humility of Jesus. Can you imagine the humility of Jesus that He is headed toward the cross, willingly going to the cross? Can you imagine? Can you, can you contain the humility of Jesus? The ruler of all men not only makes himself a man, not only takes on manness, but he's abused by men and he allows it to happen. The sinless one lowers himself to be blasphemed as a sinner and be murdered as a criminal. But he's a sinless one and he lowers himself. The creator of the human body actually takes a human body onto himself and he's beaten to death, like, just beaten to a pulp. It's humility. He lowers Himself. There's, there's not many places that describe the humility of Jesus like Philippians chapter 2, verse 5-8. through 8. Let me read it to us. Take it in. If you've heard it a hundred times, take this in. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But He made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, He, 
He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. Jesus is fully God, and yet He doesn't count equality with God as something to be grasped. He doesn't throw His Son of God card, but instead He lowers Himself for poor sinners to save Him. The eternal God lowered Himself, humbled Himself, becoming nothing, becoming of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. You think about it. He could have come as a conquering king to this earth, but instead He comes as what? A helpless little baby born in an animal stall. He could have come as a strong man, but instead He endures, He lowers Himself, and He enters into the awkwardness and the weakness of boyhood. He could have came as the greatest architect to ever walk the earth, ever. But instead he lowers himself and he's a simple carpenter, carpenter in a no-name town. See his humility? See him getting low? But he goes even lower. He goes even lower. He humbled himself and it says he became obedient to the point of death. The one who gives life died. He humbled Himself to the point of death. He endured. He tasted death for us all. He endured death for poor sinners like me and you. And not only that, He could have done some sort of death that was just like this powerhouse warrior death that everybody claps at. But He didn't do it. It says, even the death of a cross. Even the most humiliating death you can imagine. And He just lowers Himself. Christ lowers Himself. He humbles Himself. And because Christ lowered Himself as a humble, suffering servant, we can be saved. Praise the Lord. Next section here, verse 33. This is where He turns to these disciples, okay? It turns on us. And what you're going to see here is humble status. Humble service. You're going to get a lesson on humility here. He's about to press it in. This is what He's been doing on this whole walk to the cross. And here He's going to press it in. Verse 33. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, stop there. He came to Capernaum, he's in the house. So he stops, so they're coming down south of Galilee, they stop at Capernaum, Peter's hometown. The house here is probably Peter's house. Hey, that's where they spend a lot of time. And then what happened? He asked them, what is it you disputed among yourselves on the road? He just asked them a penetrating question. You ever had a question asked to you like that? You ever had somebody ask you a question and it stuns you and it silences you and it rebukes you? You ever had that? Well, this is what just went down. He just asked a penetrating, a penetrating question. Because here's the deal. He knows. You think he knows? He knows what they discussed on the road, right? Doesn't Jesus know? The same account over in Luke chapter 9, it says he perceived their thoughts. He knows their thoughts. He knows your thoughts. He knows our thoughts. We're thinking right now. So he knew. So it wasn't that he was curious. What were you talking about on the road? But he's pressing in with this penetrating question to deal with their sinful hearts. And what's their response? But they kept silent. <laughs> they didn't say anything. They didn't say a word. What, this is, a, this is a, a shameful silence. They are ashamed. They know what they've been thinking of and they know that that's not pleasing to their master. They know what they've been talking about and it's not pleasing to their master. Hopefully this is a silence of conviction. But it's shame, it's conviction. Now why were they ashamed? Why, why would they have any sort of conviction? Look what it says. But they kept silent for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. How shameful. 
Their leader, their master is moving. He's telling them about it. He's moving toward the most, the most, the greatest act of humility ever. And what are they talking about? Who's the greatest? I want to show in their desires of their hearts. I want to be the greatest. I want to be first. I want to be high up there. They wanted to be the greatest. The word there is megos. Megos. They didn't only, they weren't content to be chosen as apostles. They wanted to be the mega apostle. That's what they wanted. Verse 35, Jesus says, first, okay, first. It's equivalent here. He says, they're discussing who's the greatest. Jesus says, if you want to be first, so first, it's the same thing here. Greatest, first. That's what they wanted. They wanted to be first in rank. They did not have attitudes of humility and selfless service to other people, especially not towards each other, right? They're only thinking about themselves. They want to be first in rank. They want to get the most glory. They want to sit on His right hand and on His left hand. They want the glorious robes. They want people to serve them. That's what they're going after right here. They want to be highly esteemed. And this is pride. This is arrogance. The glory of Jesus was not at the forefront of their mind. Here's what they weren't saying. Not in us, O Lord, not in us, but to Your name be the glory. They weren't saying that. It's not what was going on on the inside. And they sure weren't looking at each other as humble servants and putting others above themselves. They sure were not doing that. Brothers and sisters, beware of pride. Beware of pride. Beware of arrogance. Pride will kill you. You know that? It'll, it will kill you. Pride is a terrible thing. If you really desire to be seen by men, and you could care less about humble service to others, there's nothing on, nothing on you about that, you can, you can be sure that you've been bit by that snake, which is pride. And it's dangerous. It's very dangerous. Spiritual pride, I'm going to throw another word in there, spiritual pride is the worst form of it. You know what it does? It takes the things of God who gets all the glory and it takes His stuff and instead of using it for His glory, the things of God for His glory and the things of God to lift up others, it takes the things of God and it lifts up self. It's about me being seen. This can be a false humility. This can be an imposter. I want to act humble. Why? So I'll be seen. You see that? It's a false humility and it's very dangerous. Jesus comes against this so hard in Matthew 23. He comes against the Pharisees. This is some of the, the, the harshest language that Jesus, is, Jesus uses. And He says, all your works you do to be seen by men. You pray so you'll be heard. You fast so you'll be seen. You give so that you'll be honored and you love being called teacher, teacher. And man, he just nails them with this. And then he just goes off and says, hypocrites, hypocrites, hypocrites. This is a very dangerous thing. So I say, brothers and sisters, beware of pride. Beware of arrogance. So how does Jesus deal with their prideful, arrogant hearts? Look at verse 35. How does he deal with it? And he sat down, called the twelve. I stopped there. He sat down, he called the twelve. Okay, he's already exposed their selfish pride with a penetrating question. And now, he's about to use this as a teaching opportunity. He sits down, he gathers them up, and this is a teaching opportunity. So whatever Jesus is about to say is extremely important. Please hear these words. He sat down, gathered them around, and what did he say? Look at it. If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. So Jesus doesn't tell them to stop desiring greatness, but He redefines greatness for them. He redefines it. What does He say? He said, you want, you want to know what greatness looks like? 
You be last of all. You be servant of all. Now, what does this mean? What does this mean, last of all? Last of all, servant of all. What does this mean, last of all? He's obviously not telling them, be the worst at everything you do. Don't excel at anything. He's obviously not saying that, right? We there? He's saying be last of all. What he's saying? What's, what he's getting out here is their prideful, selfish desires to be seen by others as first. They want to be lifted up. They want to be seen as first. And instead of doing, he tells them, he says, instead of doing things to be seen as spiritual, to be seen as cool, to be seen as godly, he says, don't do that. Lift up, exalt Jesus Christ, and get up and humble yourself under your brethren. Humble yourself under your brothers and sisters and lift them up. True greatness. You want to be high? You got to get low. Low. Humility. You want to be first? He says, get to the back of the line and put other people first. You see in the picture here? It's, it's like the parable. You ever heard the parable? If you get invited to a wedding feast, don't do what? Don't go sit in the best spot. Don't do that. He says, no, no, no. If you get invited to a wedding feast, go sit down in the lowest place. Whoever humbles himself, he says, he will be exalted. Don't be so concerned with being seen as head honcho. Are you obsessed with how you're seen? Don't be so concerned about that. In fact, stop thinking about yourself altogether. Don't idolize yourself. Stop worshiping yourself. Be willing to be seen as the last of all. Do not let your life be characterized by self-promotion. Just promoting yourself. But instead, the Scripture says, always consider others better than yourself. And look out for others' interests above your own. So, a mentality that should be in our hearts in response to this should be, who cares if you get recognized? Who cares? Secret devotion to Jesus? You have secret devotion to Him? And guess what? He says, my Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Secret devotion to the Lord. You ever, tell me if you ever heard this, this kind of... Uh, this kind of saying, it's hard to stand on a pedestal, it's hard to stand on a pedestal and wash the feet of those below. In other words, get off your pedestal of pride so that you can get down low and you can serve those that are around you. So then he says what? He says not only be first of all, but be what? He shall be servant of all. Servant of all. This is where true humility shows itself. True greatness is seen as a, a humble servant of all. Lower yourself. Be a servant of all is what he's saying right here, okay? So we got to get down low. The idea here is not to just speak bad about yourself. That can be a false humility, right? I want to be seen as humble. But it's to get down low, get my shoulder under other people and lift them up. Lift them up. Put them first. Put their needs above your own. Their interest above your own. This is the idea. The world defines greatness by how many servants you got. And Jesus right here defines greatness by what? How many people do you humbly serve? And then what you're going to see in this next section is Jesus gives them a visual aid. Go with me to verse 36. Let's read verse 36 and 37. Look at the visual aid. Then He took a child and He set him in the midst of them. And when He had taken him in His arms, He said to, to them, whoever receives one of these little ones in My name, one of these little children in My name receives Me. And whoever receives Me Receives not me, but him who sent me. So Jesus takes a child. And he takes his child and he puts him in front of the disciples. And he takes the child up into his arms. And notice that he does not say what? 
He does not say, be humble like that child. That's not what he says right here. What he says is, whoever receives one little child like this, whoever receives one, whoever takes one of these into his arms, whoever takes one in, brings them into your life, says that's true greatness. Now, what are we talking about here? Now we're talking about humility. It's going to change the angle. He's still pressing into him about humility, but he's changing the angle just a little bit. This is humility that is shown by who do you receive? Who do you associate with? This is a very important verse. Listen to this. Romans 12, 6 says this. Associate with the humble. It's the lowly. Associate. He tells them, associate with the humble. Associate with the lowly. The disciples are arguing over who is the greatest. They're full of pride. They're wanting to be first of all. And who do they want to associate with? The top notch, the elite. That's who they want to associate with. And what does Jesus do? He grabs a child, a little child, and He says, you receive little humble ones like this. So this is true greatness. This is real greatness. Now let me explain two things. To receive here means what? It means to take them by the hand to bring them into your life. This is what this word means. Take them by the hand. Receive them. Now why does He use the example of children? Why does He use children right here? And this is something I want you to see, okay? He uses the example of children in this time period, okay, among these people, this Greco-Roman people. During this time, in this time period, they did not have the sentimentality towards children that we normally have in our culture, okay? An example, in our culture, politicians kiss babies so that they're seen as sentimental in the public, right? But in this culture, what happened when they started bringing babies to Jesus? They started bringing kids to Jesus. What happened? Simon said, no, 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 don't do that. See the difference? It's very different, okay? Here's how children are seen. Children in this time were seen without, they were, they were without status. They are unimportant. In fact, there was a very high child mortality rate, so they really, parents would stay almost kind of detached until they got old enough in some ways. Children were viewed as insignificant, of little worth, until they were old enough to contribute to the family. John MacArthur described it like this. A child has no power. No achievement, no accomplishment, no greatness. A child is weak, dependent, ignored, vulnerable, with nothing to offer. So, how does Jesus deal with their pride and their arrogance? He's already told them to be servant of all. Now how does He deal with it? How does Jesus flash great humility before their eyes? How does He do it? What does He do? He takes one of these little insignificant, no-status Children, he just takes them up. He takes them into his arm. And he says, those who receive these are really the greatest. You want to be great? Associate with the humble, he says. So who's the greatest? The one who associates with the most important at work or the coolest at school? Who's the greatest here? The greatest of those who associate with the humble. Listen to this verse and tell me what you're going to do about it, okay? Luke 14, verse 11. What will you do about this verse? Let me say something real quick before I even read it. Very often when I read this verse, I've done it, and I bet you've done it too. I'm so quick to say, well, here's what this verse doesn't mean. And it's clear, there's something that you could take that it really doesn't mean. Okay, we'll get there. It doesn't mean something, but so often I say, well, here's what that verse doesn't mean, but I never get to what does it mean? What do I do with the verse? So what are you going to do with this verse? Listen to this. Luke 14, 11. Whoever exalts himself will be humble. He who humbles himself will be exalted. We're talking about humility. He who humbles himself will be exalted. When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, 
your relatives, nor your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you should be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So who do you associate with? Who do you associate with? If you look around and all your friends are just like you, what does that mean? Maybe you like yourself too much. What does it mean if everybody's just like you? Who do you associate with? Who do you take by the hand and bring them into your life? Are you obsessed with status? Do you agree with what the world says about greatness? The status. You got this high status. Is that what you agree with? Or do you agree with Jesus? And He says, the humble servants, the ones who associate with the lowly, that's greatness. So what Jesus is doing here is, I want you to think about it. He's exposing pride and He's pushing them toward humility that He's displaying at the cross. He's exposing pride, pushing them towards humility. The first thing He does is he, He exposes it by what? He says, do you desire to be seen? You want to be a humble servant. He does. He deals with it that way. And then second, right here where we're at, that was in verse 35, and right here where we're at, what does he say? He wraps his arms. I, don't you just love that picture of a little child? And Jesus got his arms wrapped around him. A little insignificant, no status one. He's got his arms wrapped around him. The disciples, what are they saying? Don't do that. Don't you know you're the king? You can't do stuff like this. But he wraps his arm around him. He says, you want to be great? This is it. He says, he who receives a little child like this receives me. That should make you think of Matthew 25, 34. Remember that? Jesus says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you came to me. I was sick and you visited me. And then the people go, Jesus, when we do all that stuff? When we, I don't remember. And he says, whenever you did it to one of the least of these, the least of these, associate with the humble." Where you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So who do you associate with? Or maybe a better question, who do you want to associate with? Who do you want to associate with? True greatness, a humble servant. Associating with, let me, let me say this, one more thing about this verse. Verse 97 said what? If you receive ones like this, Jesus says you receive me. But then he says, but not, but not me. But you received the one who sent me. You, sent, you received my Father. You want to know how great it is to associate with the humble? To associate with the lowly? You want to know how great it is? You set off a chain reaction when you do it that lands you in the throne room of God. You get an audience with the Father. Listen to Danny Aiken's summary of Mark 9.37. He said this, Treat well those who have no standing in this world Children, lepers, AIDS victims, the mentally impaired, the physically disabled, the aged, and you will receive an audience with my Father. Last section. Okay, Jesus now. Here's what's going to happen. They're going to say, one of the disciples is going to say something to Jesus now, and He's going to keep pressing on. He's going to keep prodding at their pride. And he's going to be pressing in humility. It's just going to happen at a little bit different angle. Again, He's changing angles again. Look at verse 38, Okay. While Jesus is talking, John gets pricked in his conscience. Because Jesus is talking about receiving the lowly, and John gets pricked in his conscience because he goes, wait a minute, I remember this time that I didn't receive this guy. And he gets pricked in his conscience. And look what he says in verse 38. Now John answered him saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. So they looked at this man who was doing the work of the Lord and he said, and they just, they told him to stop. 
They tried to make him stop. Why? Why would they try to make him stop? Who was this man? You know, we don't know exactly who this man is. In just, in just a little while, and as far as the timeline goes, he's about to send out the 70. You can read about that in Luke 10. Maybe that man ended up being one of the 70. We don't know. But either way, here, here's, what you, here's what you can think through. John's conscience is pricked because he did this. Why? Why? Because he knows that his rejection of that man was not for good reasons. It wasn't that he loved the truth and he wanted to defend sound doctrine. It wasn't that. That would be good. Why did he do it? Pride. Selfishness is the reason here. Notice that he says, he does not follow us. He didn't say he didn't follow you, Jesus. He didn't follow us. John's getting a little clickish here, right? He's getting kind of clickish. This person, uh, what's he doing? He didn't run with us. He can't do those things that we're doing. We're the ones that cast out demons. He's getting kind of, kind of clickish here, right? Not to mention the fact that the disciples are arguing over who's the greatest. And they don't need some outsider coming in and competing. Messing up the pecking order, right? They don't need that to happen. Especially a guy who is successfully casting out demons. Because they just failed at that just a, just a few verses ago. Okay? And they don't like this. You see the motivation? This is pride. This is arrogance. This is prideful exclusivism. It's arrogant clickishness. And we should beware of this. We should beware of this. If you think there's not a smell of that around us, you better beware. Let him take heed lest he fall. It's around us. Beware of this clickish pride that we've got it all together and they don't. So John, he confesses this arrogant clickishness. And Jesus takes this opportunity again to pick apart this expression of pride and push him in further to humility. Look what Jesus says. Do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me, for he who is not against us is on our side. So first Jesus gives a command. He says, don't forbid that man. And then why does he say not to forbid him? Why? Because if he's working miracles in my name, he's probably not going to be talking about, about me in the next sentence, right? If He's for us, He's not against us. If he's, if he's not against us, He's for us. You see that? This is His answer. Now let me say this. Here's what Jesus is not saying. Let me tell you what Jesus does not mean by what, he, what we just read. Here's what He doesn't mean. He doesn't mean, hey, just accept anybody that's talking bad about me. Don't be discerning about character or discerning about false doctrine. Just, just accept anybody as long as they're doing miracles. Okay, that's not what He's saying. Okay. In fact, just a few chapters later in Mark 13, he's going to look at them and say, he's going to warn them about prophets, false prophets, who actually do miracles and signs and deceive people. So he's going to warn them about that. So that's not what he's saying out here. So what is Jesus saying? He knows that they rejected this man because of cliquish pride. And Jesus is being plain here. That just because that man is not a part of your little group doesn't mean he's not with me. Doesn't mean he's not on your side. See that? Pride destroys unity. Arrogance destroys unity. In pride, we feel like we got it all together and nobody else is doing it right. But humility builds up unity. It builds it up. In, in humility, you actually celebrate diversity. You're thankful for those who serve Christ in sincerity and in truth, even though they might do it a little different than you. Humility, it builds Unity. Now lastly, in verse 41, Jesus gives an example. A very humble, often overlooked type example 
of a task being a humble task being done for Christ in Christ's name. And, and the exhortation to us is, man, we ought to rejoice when we see this kind of thing happening, even if they're a little different than us. Look what he says. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, I surely I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Man, don't you love that example? Of this person taking a cup of water and giving it to a disciple in the name of Jesus. And Jesus says, not taking that reward away. I'm going to lose that reward. Don't you love that example? This humble, lowly example. Are you able to rejoice over the sincere labors of those people that are not a part of your group? Or must you be the star of the show? I think that's a good question to ask. Must we be the stars of the show? Let me point you to really quickly to one piece of scripture I think that's helpful. Okay, now what Paul? It's in Romans twelve, and you can turn there. Romans twelve through, and what Paul's going to do here is he's going to prevent this cliquish, arrogant attitude from the front end. It's almost it's a very similar attitude that Jesus is rebuking on the back end. Okay. Listen in verse 3. Romans 12, 3. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, he says. But to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. He's looking, he's not, you know, obviously... It's not a measure of faith dealt to unbelievers. He's talking to the church here, to the body of Christ. He says each one's been dealt a measure of faith by God. He says, don't think more highly than you ought to think. Don't think more highly than you ought to think. Verse 4, For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. Don't think more highly of your function than you ought to think. Not all have the same function. Verse 5, So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing. There's different gifts in the church of Jesus Christ. Don't think more highly of your gift, your gifting, than you ought to think. And he gives them instruction. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. In humility, we need humility to maintain unity before God. We Here in this church, we need it. And we need humility to maintain unity, even with brothers and sisters and not a part of Grace Community Church. Very quick, very quick application here. Application. Part of this application, let me just summarize the humility that has been shown to us in this passage. Let me just summarize it, okay? Christ is the ultimate example of a humble servant. Ultimate. That's number one. Number two, humility cares nothing of being seen, but is obsessed with serving others and lifting them above yourselves. It's humility. Number three, humility cares nothing for status, but associates with the lowly. Number four, humility does not think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but rather he rejoices in the humble service to Christ from other people. Now that's a summary of how this passage expresses humility. Let me give you a one-liner. I love one-liners. One line. 1 Peter 5 5. Don't flip there, but it says this. Listen. Be clothed with humility. Be clothed with humility. That humility that makes you get down low and serve others. 
that doesn't think more highly of himself than else is thinking. In fact, he didn't think of himself much at all. Clothe yourself without humility is what he says here. Put on your humble clothes. Clothe yourself with humility. Now, what you need to do, what we all need to do, is take that and apply it to every area of life. And I can't do that for you. But I can send you home homework that I won't check, I guess. But I encourage you to apply this to every area of your life. Think about it. I'll just kind of help give you a thoughtful framework here. How are you going to apply this? Take this calling of God to humility in your life and apply it to every single area. For example, what about to home and family? What about to home and family? What about that? Husbands, humble yourself and be humble servants to your wife and to your children. Or your roommate. Roommates, if you have roommates here, humble yourself and be low servants to them or what about applying it to you know keep going in that realm the home and family type realm what about wives wives be humble servants to your husbands be humble servants to your husbands children there's children here that i see that can understand what i'm saying be humble servants to your family and to your parents if they're teaching you to be humble servants they're teaching you something great jesus calls it greatness let me say one more thing to wives real quick I wasn't sure if I was going to say this. Right, wives and mamas. Let me say something to mamas, okay? Mamas here. I know, mama, you don't always feel like, I just want you to think about it, just give, it, give thought to this. Mamas, I know you don't always feel like that you are doing mighty works of God while you're changing that diaper and while you're spanking that bottom and while you're doing the same lesson over and over again because they don't get it. I know you don't feel like you're doing mighty works of God, but mamas, think about something. When Jesus wanted to step up and say, let me show you greatness. Let me put greatness in front of you. What does He do? He takes a little child. He says, you receive one like that. You take in one like that. He says, that's greatness. You receive me. So be encouraged, mamas. Press on, sisters. What about another avenue? What about the church? Put into the realm of the church. Do you have a mindset towards your brothers and sisters? If, if we all looked, don't do it, but if we all looked around at each other, do you have a mindset toward each other to be humble servants toward each other? Or is the mindset to be a consumer? What's this church going to do for me? What's in it for me? Is that the mindset? Or is it, I want to be a humble servant? Is it passive? Is it just passive whenever something pops up? Uh, yeah, sure. I can close up my back if you need it. Or is this an active, aggressive, there's needs here and I'm going to be a humble servant among these people. I'm going to go after that. I encourage you to think about that on, on, with the church. What about toward the world? Before any, anybody in the world, co-workers, uh, fellow students, are you a humble servant before them? Are you passive or are you active and aggressive? and being a humble servant to the world. Now, I encourage you to spend some time by yourself asking God, God, how can I grow in these areas? How can I grow in this? Open God's Word. How can I be changed? How can I be transformed in this sort of way? And then also asking God to take this church, Grace Community Church, and just make us a, a, a church full of humble servants to the glory of Jesus Christ. And let me end, let me close with one quote from John Stott. John Stott said this, At every stage of our Christian development, and in every sphere, sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is our greatest enemy and humility is our greatest friend. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this time together. Thank You, Lord, for helping us, God. Thank You for letting us open Your Word, God. And I just pray You would conform us into the image of Your Son.
Form us, Lord. Make us like you. In Jesus' name, amen.